All right. I think we're good to go. John chapter 1. We're not going to be in the first 18 verses. We only spent three weeks there. Um, and I think we've, uh, we've, we really, we haven't exhausted them. Not at all. But they're in, uh, in compressed form in those, in those uh, first 18 verses really is the whole book of John and all of the main messages, all of the main themes that are there. Uh, so today we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. We'll just read that before we get uh, started here. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am the Christ. I am not the Christ. I almost messed that. I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. As a prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if neither you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and am borne witness that this is the Son of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So today we're going to consider an extended account, an extended version of the witness of John the Baptist. One of the main themes in the book of John is the theme of witness. And there are actually seven people who give testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John is Hebrew. He loves sevens. There are seven signs. Um, there are seven I am's, I believe. And there are seven witnesses. John is the first witness. Um, there are many others and we'll get to them as we go on. But I wanted to point out to you that the word that is used for testimony or witness is the word martyr, marturo, which is where we get our word martyr. Um, a biblical witness is someone who is um, going to testify about their Lord and King even to the point of death. A witness is 
an overcomer in the book of Revelation who overcomes by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they do not love their lives so as to shrink from death. And if you know the history of John the Baptist, John was martyred very shortly after he spoke the words that were, we, we just read. All right, so um, this whole scene here, it's kind of like a trial scene. It's more like a kangaroo court. There's no official verdict or official sentence. But the way that the questions are asked, asked there is, uh, the onus is on John the Baptist to defend, first of all, to explain who he is, to explain what kind of a person he is, to explain why he's doing what he's doing. He is baptizing people in the Jordan. Um, and at this point in the history of Israel, that kind of baptism was not a common thing. I understand that a little bit later they began to baptize people as proselytes when they wanted to become, uh, enter into the Jewish faith. And it could be that they were doing that sometime before either. The, the history is a little fuzzy right there. But these baptisms, they were considered very significant by the people who observed them, especially the religious people. Um, so John is in the hot seat. He is being put upon to defend himself. But he uses it as an opportunity to deflect attention from himself and to reflect the true light that came into the world that we studied in the first 18 verses. John says, I, he was, or John the Apostle says of John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he was sent to testify or bear witness to the light, to be a martyr for the light, to be a, a proclaimer of the light. Well, first of all, we start in verse one or verse 19 here with a delegation that is sent from the Jewish hierarchy. Um, it says in verse 29 or verse 19, <clears throat> and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Uh, and then, then he asked the question, who are you? But let's spend a little time just understanding what is meant by the Jews. It's a, it's a specific use of the word Jews, meaning the hierarchy, the leadership, the Sanhedrin, um, the people who really call the shots in Jerusalem. And I believe that the Sanhedrin, uh, they typically didn't include Pharisees in their number, but obviously, as we discover later on, the Pharisees were involved here. So this was the who's who in Israel. They were sending out lowly priests and Levites to do an errand for them. Now, the priests would, would have been just, uh, would, would have been those who served in the temple with the sacrifices and so on, and um, uh, not, not the high priestly variety, just the run-of-the-mill priests. And the Levites were kind of like associate priests. They were uh, kind of low on the totem, totem pole. They weren't disrespected, but they lacked the honor of the others. And some people believe that one of the things that the Levites did in the temple was they served as protection for the, everybody who was really important. Um, so there's some possibility that the Levites came along sort of as backup in case John's followers got out of hand when they started asking these questions. Uh, so 
these men, these priests and Levites, were sent from the Jews. They were sent from the elite, from the religious establishment. Now, if you recall from the book of Matthew, so much of the conflict and so, so many of the, uh, the uh, controversial words that Jesus spoke were reserved for the religious establishment, either for the Pharisees or for the Sadducees or for the scribes. So, and also even the, the rulers, the Sanhedrin. Uh, but we have this, uh, it's not really a lynch mob, it's a fact-finding mob. And to be fair, these uh, Jewish leaders, they probably at this point didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. His public ministry had just barely begun. Um, this event actually takes place um, the day before Jesus goes off into the desert to be tempted because he's baptized and then right away, immediately, he's taken off into the desert to be tempted. And then he comes back after that and that's when his public ministry begins in earnest. So he's appeared on the radar a couple of times. You know, he, he talked to the, uh, the leaders in the temple when he was 12 years old, and he taught them the scriptures, and they marveled. But this, uh, the internet didn't exist, and you didn't have a Facebook profile in those days, and people couldn't keep track of people as well. So uh, he, he was probably under the radar until this time. So... At this point, they may not have even known that John was proclaiming Jesus. They probably thought that he could be doing a good thing. He's calling people to repentance, and the Pharisees did the same thing. They believed, they believed that if there were complete and total repentance, that Messiah would come. But John was doing something more than just uh, generically calling people to repentance. If you read in the Gospel of Matthew, he's taking shots at the religious establishment and at the scribes and at the Pharisees. He's calling them a brood of vipers. And uh, he's calling them to repent too. And he's, he's saying, you have, you have to be washed, you have to be cleansed just like everyone else. So whatever their motives were, we know they were checking out and they were just um, assessing whether John was a threat whether he was a friend or a foe. So that's the delegation from the Jewish hierarchy. Then in verse 20, and verses 20 all the way, actually goes on for a little bit, but we have an interrogation into John's identity. They want to know who he is. And rather than getting right to the point and asking, who are you? They pick certain figures, which in their minds, he has certain characteristics of those figures. And, and they ask him some questions. So the first question in this interrogation, uh, actually John anticipates their first question. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The buzz, the rumor among the, you know, the general population of Israel was, could this be the Christ? That's the, the question that people were asking. Um, they may not have been as learned as the Pharisees or as the scribes, uh, but they questioned, the, the question on their mind was because they were all hoping the Messiah would come. They lived in a time of expectancy because 
Israel had been gathered in a, in a great, in a more complete way than it had for a long time. There were oppressing rulers, but there was a, a real state of Israel, and they were anticipating Messiah to come and deliver them. But John is very, very adamant in denying and making it clear right off the bat that he is not the Christ. He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed. In other words, he said it so clearly that he could not possibly be mistaken. He's using Jewish repetition to make the point extra strong. I am not the Christ. He made a clear distinction. So that's the answer to the first, the first question that they never even have to ask. I'm not the Christ. What then, they said, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Now you need to understand kind of what is in the background in Jewish eschatology, if you want to understand why they asked if this was Elijah. The very last book of the Old Testament, near, I think it's almost the very last verse in Malachi chapter 5, there is a prediction about Elijah coming before Messiah comes. And I want to read it for you from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of, their fa- of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, there was an anticipation of Elijah coming before Jesus, before Messiah actually came and began to rule. Um, and his ministry was characterized by repentance. He would turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The idea of reconciliation. And when you reconcile with man, when you truly reconcile That only happens because there's been a reconciliation, there's been a repentance between you and God. The two go together. James James says it pretty clearly. If you don't love your neighbor, then you don't love God. And the the opposite is true. If you don't love God, then you don't love your neighbor. Uh, Not in the the way that God desires us to love our neighbor. But anyway, um, there was anticipation of this figure. Now, there's two possible things they could have been thinking. Elijah, of course, if you recall, is one of the two people in the Old Testament that we know for sure were bodily taken to heaven. There was Elijah, who was taken up in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. And then there was um, Enoch, who walked with God and was not. Those were the only two uh, that have entered into the presence of God uh, without, without a seeing death. So... Perhaps some thought that he would return um, and fulfill that because it was prophesied. Others would have thought that Elijah could kind of, another man could be, reinc- be incarnated with, or in, in, inspired, indwelt with the spirit of Elijah. There was a, an aberrant, a false belief in some of the Jewish teaching that it was kind of like reincarnation. You could kind of have um, body after body occupied by the same spirit. Um, so that's what's in the back of their minds. And John just answers very bluntly. He says, I'm not. 
Now this presents a little bit of a problem if we don't understand the intention of John compared to the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Um, I want to read to you from Matthew 11, verses 11 to 14, what Jesus said about John. Uh, In fact, I'm just going to skip a little bit and read verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So John's saying, I'm not Elijah. Jesus saying, he is Elijah. Well, John John is answering according to the nature of their question. Their question is, are you Elijah the Tishbite? Are you the Elijah who did battle on the mountain with Baal? Are you that Elijah? Are you that prophesied Elijah who will come? And Jesus, on the other hand, is talking about the spirit in which he is ministering, which is the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus, by the way, also maintains that Elijah will come. He he maintains that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, but there is, very likely, a specific return of Elijah, the Elijah, before the kingdom comes. Uh, Perhaps Elijah is one of the two witnesses that we read about in the book of Revelation who proclaim, uh, call people to repentance and, and point out their sin in the middle of Jerusalem and then they are killed and raised again three days later, three and a half days later. Uh, so he's not Elijah. Um, and notice he's not engaging in long theological discussions. Are you Elijah? I'm not. In fact, his responses get shorter and shorter. First he says, I am not the Christ. Then I am not. And then the third question, are you a prophet? He answered no. He didn't have any um, desire to debate with these guys or to um, make any more of himself than he was. <coughs> Give them flat, straight answers. Now, why would they ask him, are you the prophet? Well, again, we need to understand something about Jewish eschatology, which means the study of, their study of the last things. There is a promise all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God said that he would send a prophet like Moses and that the people would listen to him. Now we understand from the book of Acts that is used in reference to Jesus. But the Jews had all kinds of theories about who the prophet was and some of them maybe didn't know, so they just called him that prophet. Some thought Jeremiah was going to come back, sort of in their same wrong thinking as they thought Elijah could come back. But here's what Deuteronomy 18 says about the prophet. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when he said, let me not hear again... Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all I command him and whoever I will, will not listen to my words 
that he shall speak in my name, I myself will requite it of him. So Jesus is the one who said, I, I say what I hear my father saying. I do what I see my father doing. Jesus was completely um, supplied as a man by the father. But John says, I'm not. I'm not that prophet. Jesus actually does call John a prophet. Um, he, but John is, again, he is answering the question in response to their assumptions, and he understood where they were coming from. And he says, I am not that special prophet. And in his mind, he's also saying, you guys don't know that prophet is actually Christ. But again, no, I'm not him. All right, so, so they said to him, who are you? They've got three negative responses. Now they're just finally getting to the point. They're, they're not beating around the bush anymore. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The ones who sent them were the Pharisees. And that says that in verse 24. They had been sent by the Pharisees. And when you read about the Pharisees, you know that they were like bulldogs. They would bite onto an issue and they wouldn't let it go. They are the ones that pursued Paul from city to city to city and um, they instigated, they even brought in their enemies, the Sadducees, and tried to conspire together against the apostles. That's the nature of the Pharisees. And they were exacting because it was, they saw it as their mission to analyze and parse the law into all its little components and to relate it to every practical area of life so that if people um, kept all of their teachings, which later became the Talmud, if they had all of their teachings and if they observed all of their extrapolations from the law, that they could actually usher in the reign of Messiah and they could actually attain favor with God as a people. So even though the Levites and the priests, even though they weren't Pharisees, they knew that these guys weren't going to let up. And also, even though the Pharisees were a small sect, only numbering about 6,000, they were very, very um, prominent among the people. They weren't prominent in terms of social status as far as career or wealth, but they were prominent because the people looked, at, looked up to them as the real spiritual leaders. So, um, that's why they were so zealous about bringing an answer. They might not have had a horse in the race, as it were. Um, they might not have cared one way or the other. But those who sent them sure did. Alright, so now John is going to get to the point of who he really is. And he does it so graciously, and so humbly, and so truthfully. How does he answer when they say, Who, what do you say about yourself? What have you got to say for yourself in our vernacular? John's, so in point number three here is John's declaration of his identity. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, if you look in the Isaiah chapter 40, where that quote is taken from, you'll see that it's a little bit different. 
And it's because the writers in the New Testament often quoted from what's called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in fact, even Jesus quoted from that. And it, it varies slightly. from in, in some places, it varies quite a bit from the actual Hebrew. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. But he says, um, I am the voice of one crying in the, out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. All right, he identifies himself as a voice. And the way that he quotes it, it's, you, you have this image of desolation, of someone who's out in the wilderness and there's, there's not a whole bunch of people. It's maybe into a, a very bleak and very hostile environment. And John is crying out, saying, make way in the desert, a pathway or a highway, the way of the Lord. I'd like you to notice the adjective or the noun that John uses to describe himself and compare it with the noun that is used in the first 18 verses to describe Jesus. John says, I am the voice, I am, pardon me, I am the voice of one crying out. I am the voice, Greek phone, sound. I am the sound of one crying out. I'm not even necessarily the one crying out. I'm the voice he is using to cry out. As opposed to, in the beginning was the word, ha-logos. The perfect expression of the thought and intention and character and divinity of God. Who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So you've got this voice in the wilderness. Really a herald, a messenger compared to the actual source of the message. And the actual um, content of his message is the Logos, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God, he's coming. The king is coming. Let's be ready for him. When, we, when Ron and I lived in Regina, I, I can't say for sure, I can't remember the year, but the queen... The queen came to visit. It was either the queen or the queen mother came to visit Regina. And uh, as part of her uh, route to her different venues where she was making appearances, she had to uh, venture through one of the less than desirable neighborhoods of Regina. And I remember seeing a news report. There was a, a young man who <laughs> was, was doing a very menial job he was going along on every, every uh, slab of the sidewalk. There were weeds growing up in between, as weeds are, tend to do on poor sidewalks. And he was, uh, he was carefully pulling every weed out all the way along that long road. And of course, the reporter asked him, well, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Well, I'm pulling out the weeds. I'm preparing the way because everything has to be perfect. The queen is coming. 
Well, I think making straight in the desert, the highway for God, it isn't about having everything perfect. But it's about repenting. It's about acknowledging who we are and our sin in the light of Scripture and what it says about us. And if you want to really get the scope of that repentance message, you need to read the fuller accounts of John's sermons where he is calling people to repent in the other Gospels. So, but the short form of it is preparing a highway for God is repentance. It is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is from the Greek metanoia, which simply means a change of mind or a turning. A turning toward God, a turning away from sin. And this was the message of John. Now, John preached a lot of law. He preached a, a harsh message. He preached a lot of practical measures that people could take. Um, you know, don't stop stealing, stop doing this, stop doing that. That's the law. But praise God, John also preached the gospel. The other gospels tend to focus more on the law aspect, but John focuses on the good news because he's focusing on the whole mission. He's focusing on the deity of Jesus Christ and that that God became man in order to bring men to God. Well, we have one other thing uh, to look at before we look at the revelation of the Messiah, and that's point number four, the expectation of the Pharisees. 24, it says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. John had to make that clear. And he makes it clear because of the, the next question that they ask. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? One of the things that the Pharisees were experts on was eschatology, the end times. The Sadducees, they really didn't take, they didn't waste a lot, or it wouldn't have been wasted, but they didn't expend a lot of thought pondering things like the resurrection. In fact, the Sadducees just flat out says, we don't believe in stuff like that. Um, we believe in the principles of the law. We don't believe in the miraculous. They were ancient liberals. Pharisees, on the other hand, were conservative. They believed in a literal resurrection from the dead. They believed that this was coming. They were very, very sure that Messiah would return. In fact, their whole lives were geared toward observing a, a, a perfect Sabbath so that Messiah would return. So they have these questions and their eschatological questions, their end times questions. Then why are you baptizing? if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. You see, they had expectations. If you're the Christ, you're going to be acting a certain way. If you're Elijah, you're going to be acting a certain way. If you're the prophet. They saw all of these three figures as ushering in a new era, 
as initiating something that was radically different from what had gone before. And they would have understood something about the baptism as an inauguration of that new way. It's like a, almost like a new birth. They wouldn't have fully grasped any of the spiritual significance as Jesus later taught. So I want to give you maybe some idea where they were getting this from. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I, I read part of this. I, I read this in our uh, call to worship. But listen again in, in this context of the, the Jews, the Pharisees who knew the scriptures. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put with it a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, that talks about sprinkling clean water. That sort of didn't match the mode of baptism that John was doing. They, people would come down into the water. John would dunk them under the water. They'd come up again. But I don't doubt that there was some association because they would have understood this to be in conjunction with the coming of Messiah that he would cleanse them from their, their idolatry, that he would put an end to all of this. And he would radically change his people. So, all of these figures whether Elijah, John, or the prophet, would have had something to do with ushering in this um, new era of Messiah. I don't think the Pharisees grasped at all what it meant to have the Holy Spirit in them. You can just look ahead in chapter 3 and read Jesus' dialogue with John, who was a Pharisee, who had no concept or just could not grasp the concept of being born again by the Spirit of God. He couldn't get it. It was all external. It was all external observance. It was external rites. The Pharisees would make sure that they carefully observed all of the washings. There were a lot of quote-unquote baptisms. There was washing of hands. There was washing of pots and pans. There was a, a special... Uh, a special consecration whenever they had to come into contact with the Gentiles. Uh, there was a washing of the high priest before he went in on the Day of Atonement. There were all kinds of baptisms. And here's John. He's coming along with a, with a baptism that's radically different than anything that they've done. And they are equating that with all of these other things that they see as part of their ritual... But that's as far as it goes. See, this is just another thing that we need to do in order to make us right with God. And they're missing the spiritual message that John is bringing. Well, now John is set to reveal the Messiah. John answered them. And this is point number five in the last one. John answered them. I baptize with water. 
but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now he doesn't immediately expand on what his, uh, on that baptizing with water. He says, I baptize with water. But the subtext here, when you read the rest, is big deal. I baptize with water. The one who's coming after me, my ministry, what I'm calling people to do, what I'm doing as a, as a minister of the gospel, it is nothing compared to the one who's coming after me. In rank, I don't compare to him. I am a servant who is not even worthy to untie his sandal. I'm not worthy to untie. Now, I was going to stop there, but I couldn't because, because well, the, I was going to stop there because the very next verse, it says, the next day. And I was going to divide it into days. There's sort of four days in a row that were the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, all in these, these, uh, this first chapter of John. Uh, but I think we have to go into the next day because John's message continues. He begins to reveal Jesus. He, begin, he again, he exalts Jesus. He brings himself low. He, he's very careful to preserve that distance. He doesn't claim to be anyone special. But in verses 29 and 30, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, they would have all understood that reference. They would have understood the reference to the Lamb on the Day of Atonement or to, and also to the, to the sin bearer that went off into the desert. They would have understood, perhaps, even the, uh, the, the, spread, the spreading of the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. And, but they would not have understood how that lamb was to be a man. And how that man was to be their Messiah, their anointed one, their expected saving king. They didn't put those two together in one person. They didn't understand the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see that also reflected you don't you don't see the lamb in that passage in Ezekiel but you have God sprinkling clean water and you have him washing away their sins taking them away taking away their idolatry giving them a new heart it's the same ministry now it says this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me i think that's uh, maybe back in verse 15 where he first sat. Now, I'd like you to just pause for a minute and consider this. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. All right. Now, chronologically, 
as we have John's testimony, Jesus shows up the next day. Or he shows up after um, that first testimony. But, John says, I come before Jesus, but he comes before me. That's the mystery. I come before Jesus. In fact, John was conceived six months before Jesus. And uh, apparently had very little to do with him because he didn't even recognize him until the Holy Spirit came and, and the dove came and, and, um, and showed John the Baptist that this was indeed Jesus. He was the Messiah. But um, here he's saying he ranks before me because he was before me. How is it that the younger man actually existed before the older man? And the answer is John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Literally, before there was a beginning, the Word was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's part of John's testimony about Jesus, knowing that he pre-existed all things. In the beginning was the Word. He was before me. It's uh, one of the many testimonies to the witness of Jesus Christ. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. And here's why John came. That he might be revealed to Israel. John wanted to preach repentance to the people of Israel, but the real motivation of everything he did was to introduce them and reveal Jesus. He was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. He came to point, turn people to the light. Remember, the people were too blind to even see the light. They, were, they loved the darkness. They, uh, they did not. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But through the preaching of the word, and through the preaching of John the Baptist, his goal was to reveal Christ and, and to trust the Lord to use that preaching. So John says, I bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Again, that passage in Ezekiel, that's what's happening. That is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Now maybe there will be uh, a mass outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel in the last day. But in part at least, when Jesus came and when, when especially when after he had ascended on the day of Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit and the whole... The whole crowd heard the gospel. All 120 that were gathered together there received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke in other languages so that everyone could hear. And people were swept into the kingdom because they were given new hearts. It says, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. When you think of baptism, as it's described in 
um, Romans chapter 6. It has a lot to do with death. <coughs> baptized into his death. That's why we go down into the water. It's like being buried. But it's also about life. It's about being raised up with him in newness of life. But the water is not what makes that happen. Neither is the one who baptizes with water the one who makes that happen. The one who brings life when there's death is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is sent by Jesus to bring people to repentance and faith and to give them a new heart so that they can trust in Him. And they can believe in Him. And that believing, they can have life through His name. So when Jesus later on talks to Nicodemus, He says to him, and Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, he has to talk kindergarten talk to this Pharisee. So he understands. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in baptism, you have a picture of death, but you also have a picture of birth, being raised again in newness of life, of coming out. Some of that image is here. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So John says, I baptize with water. Don't look at me. The water is only a symbol of what Christ what Messiah will do. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will wash away your iniquities. He will take away your idolatry. He will give you a new heart that loves Him and wants to obey Him and that seeks Him. That is grace. Complete, sovereign grace. Even the repentance part is grace. It is a gift. You can't... You can't convince yourself to repent if you are happy with your stone-cold, dead and trespasses and sin heart and everything that it loves. God has to change that heart. God has to give you a new heart. And it is that new heart that hears and believes. Now, these last few verses, I kind of went quickly through them. We'll probably address verses 29 through uh, 34 in more detail next week. But this is the witness of John the Baptist. And I think we can all learn a lot from this. We aren't by any means in the same, um, in the same shoes as John the Baptist. Jesus says, um, he actually said in, in Matthew, and I'll read that, I read it last week, but it says... Truly, I truly, I say to you, those born of women, of those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you, are, if you have a new heart, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you're greater than John the Baptist, no matter how puny and small you might think you are. It's because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Now, if John bore witness with the Spirit of God upon him and empowering him for that specific task, how much more effectively and boldly can we proclaim the message with the very Spirit of God indwelling us and empowering us? Pentecost, Jesus advised his disciples, you shall receive power. So, let's take some tips, at least, from John. Let's not confuse ourselves with Jesus. Let's not um, puff up our own piety, or our own asceticism, or our own holiness, or our own worthiness. Let's continually point to Jesus Christ. And there's one other thing. Forgot to mention this. At one point, John says to the crowd there, um, in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And John has to explain to them, Jesus is right there. The word has been made flesh and is tabernacling among them. And yet, they don't know him. And I think what he means is you don't know him yet. There were some that would reject him and would, have nev would never know them. But John, his role was to faithfully make known the Jesus who came to dwell among them but who was not known. And that is our mandate as Christians, to make Jesus known. Not to, not to puff up our own ministry or our own credentials. Let's keep ourselves out of it as much as we can. And keep pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. And I thank you, Lord, for the witness of John the Baptist. And Lord, I know he was looking forward to, to Messiah. And he lived in a whole different time. Our goal today has not been to focus on him. But to see who it is that he was so utterly consumed with and awed, awestruck with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that... You would encourage us through these words today to proclaim your word boldly, to not be ashamed, Lord, and to point to Jesus as the one who gives new life, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. And we're dismissed for lunch, for supper. I preached extra long so you'd be extra hungry.